stand with me as we read God's word together. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, but he's also sharing with you and I when he says this. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these words. And as that church in Corinth was reading this letter for the first time, and they're hearing these words, what must have stirred in their hearts? May it be so with us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning's message is entitled, The Right Side of the Bed in 2024. The Right Side of the Bed in 2024. You know, that's a funny term. We don't actually use the term, the right side of the bed. Nobody ever says, wow, you got up on the right side of the bed this morning. We actually do the opposite. So-and-so got up on the wrong side of the bed today. It's an interesting idiom that we have and that we use. Actually, coincidentally, maybe not, Paul probably was familiar with the term himself because that term comes from ancient Rome. The Romans were superstitious and they believed that if you got up on the right side of the bed or the wrong side of the bed, and if you accidentally put your left foot forward first when you got up and your first step was on your left foot, that dictated the probability you were going to have a bad day. That came from Rome. How about that? I don't know what the deal was with the left foot or the, the wrong side of the bed. How do you know if it's the wrong side of the bed? Who tells you? Is it labeled that way? I don't know, but it's an interesting tradition that we have. I think the idea was, if so-and-so got up on the wrong side of the bed this morning, what we mean is that something must have happened to that person because they are in a what kind of mood? A bad mood. Everybody, nobody ever says that to somebody who's happy-go-lucky. It's to somebody who's in a bad mood. Usually it's your boss, your spouse, your teacher, or somebody you work for. So-and-so got up on the wrong side of the bed today. Maybe it's about us and everybody's saying that about us. It means that we're in a bad mood and because we're in a bad mood, something caused that mood to be bad. What, what must have happened to them? Ooh, we just blame the bed. Well, what happens when God wakes up on the wrong side of the bed? Of course, that's another idiom because God doesn't have a bed. He doesn't sleep or slumber. And he, um, he has no foot to put forward. And he doesn't, uh, he doesn't need a bed. He doesn't need rest in that sense of the, of the term of being unconscious. But there are situations that are, occur in our world and in our history and in the Bible that affects God's demeanor. Did you know that? There are times, and we know in the Bible, that God is very unhappy. And I wonder if the Israelites ever said to one another quietly, ooh, 
God got up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. Last month, both Chris and I preached about God's blessings. And when I say the word blessings, we often think of specifics, that special job that we got, that raise that we'd been wanting, those good things that happened to us in life, good health and happy relationships and those sorts of things. But this morning, I want us to look at our relationship with God in a more holistic manner, not specific things, but just generally speaking, that umbrella of God's blessings in our life and God's favor. I still see signs and bumper stickers that say, God bless America. I think it's a good thing for us to say, by the way. It's overdone in the sense that our presidents and our politicians love to say it. Even if they're completely godless, they'll still, in their speeches, God bless America. It's the only time they mention God. <laughs> Interestingly enough, not all of them, just some of them. But they like to say that, God Bless America. And many Americans actually believe that God is, that, excuse me, that America is blessed by God. And I think they're right. And the many thousands of people uh, pouring over our southern border every week. Don't you know, they're coming here because they believe this country has been blessed by God. And they want to be a part of that blessings. I can understand. I don't agree that they're all pouring in. I think we should have some say in that as Americas, just to keep as Americans, just to keep our borders safe. But I do understand their thinking. That we want to be in, in the middle of God's blessings, whoever we are and whatever nation we're from. I can understand why they would be have, have an appeal or there would be an appeal to America. I get the impression that people outside of our country appreciate our country more than the people inside our country. Most of our leaders and even pastors will often say, America is the most blessed nation on earth. I'm not sure that's true. It depends on what kind of criteria you set for the word blessed or blessing. What does that mean? What do words like favor and blessing mean in the Bible? And how does it apply to you and to me in 2024? I want us to notice two important things about Israel this morning. We're actually going to look at a passage in the Old Testament where we first start to understand what it means to be uh, in the middle of God's favor, to be blessed by God. Generally speaking, as an individual, families, and as a nation, uh, first, this morning, we want to see that the Israelites were under the favor of God, and they clearly were. If you look at Numbers chapter 23, verse 20, <laughs> I love this story. I don't know if that sparked something in you when I said Numbers chapter 23. It, it may not have at all, but it's a great story. It actually happened, and this is an, an absolutely fascinating guy who said these words. Numbers chapter 23, verse 20, he says this. I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I can't change it. No misfortune is seen in Jacob, no misery observed in Israel. The Lord their God is with them. God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild, on a, a wild ox. There's no sorcery against Jacob, no divination against Israel. It will now be said of Jacob and of Israel, see what God has done. 
Whoever said this is saying the nation of Israel is under God's favor. They have been blessed by God. It is undeniable. Even people who hate them resent them because they're so blessed by God. And this individual is saying this. There, there's no way around it. Everybody looks at him and goes, wow, look what their God did. So who said this? Well, it's an interesting guy named Balaam. Now, Balaam is a fascinating man in that he was a prophet of the day, but he was a wicked prophet. Now, generally, wicked prophets were phony prophets. That's not the case with Balaam. He was a legitimate, genuine prophet of God. He just wasn't a very good guy. <laughs> He's a bad prophet. In fact, he was so bad, we're going to see him at the end of the Bible, all the way over in Revelation, mentioned because he was infamous for all the wrong reasons. And then we're going to see in this passage a man named Balak. doesn't list him by name, but Balak was the king of Moab. Now, Moab was a, uh, a, a kingdom there in, in Canaan. When the Israelites took possession of Canaan, the promised land, and they're coming in by the millions as one, and God is just raking over everybody there because God said to the Israelites and promised Abraham, your descendants will inherit this land. The problem is after their 40 years of judgment into the wilderness, after being delivered out of Egypt, when they go to take the Holy Land, there are people living there. Nations are living there. Many, many people, millions of people likely lived in what we know as Israel today. And so some of them were Moabites. Now, no Moabites were not godly people. They didn't follow after the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had their own gods, false gods. And so they were a part of, of the, those that are going to get squeezed out as Israel comes in. The king of Moab realizes this. Oh, we're in trouble. We got to do something against these people. And so he devises a plan. This is a fascinating plan because you don't usually see this plan in the Old Testament. He doesn't call them to arms at this point. It doesn't say, get your spears and your shields and we're going to go get them. Instead, he decides he's going to hire a prophet to put a curse on this new nation that's coming in called Israel. He didn't know anything about God's uh, the, the God of Israelites, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He just thinks, I'm going to hire a dude to, to put a curse on them, and then they'll be cursed, and we won't even have to fight them. That's fascinating. I, I find that fascinating. I think it's interesting. By the way, fun fact about Moab, there was a lady in Moab who married an Israelite guy, and this Israelite guy, or these Israelite guys, brought their father and their mother with them to Moab. And uh, the father and the sons all died. And so now this lady is here with her sister-in-law and her mother-in-law. The mother-in-law's name was Naomi. And the, one of the daughters' name was uh, Orpah, by the way. And Oprah gets her name from Orpah because somebody mispronounced it, I think Oprah said. And it ended, they ended up calling her Oprah, interestingly, but Orpah. And then the other daughter-in-law's name was Ruth. Now, Ruth renounced her false gods and said to Naomi, her mother-in-law, as they got ready to go back to the promised land, 
Your God will now be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you go, I will go, and where you die, I will die. Interestingly, that God, interesting that God blessed that commitment on her part, even though she was a foreigner, a Moabitess. God blessed her, and she became the great-grandmother of who? Of David, King David. She was the great-grandmother of King David, and because she is in the line of David, she is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, a Moabitess. Now, he doesn't know uh, Ruth. He doesn't have this, this King Balak. He doesn't have anything to do with her. I told you that's just a fun fact. But he has an interesting strategy. So he, he contacts this guy named ba uh, Balaam. And he says, Balaam, I want to hire you because there's this group of people coming in. I want you to put a curse on them. And Balaam says, well, I'll tell you right now, I can't do anything other than what God tells me to do. And his God is the same God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't know if Balak really gets that, but Balaam says, I can only do what he tells me to do. Now, he was a wicked prophet, but he wasn't a stupid prophet. And so Balak says, okay, okay, so go up on this mountain. I'll go with you, and you'll make some sacrifices. He, he, they had seven altars built, and they made 14 animal sacrifices on those altars. And Balaam goes to God after those 14 sacrifices and says, hey, what do you want me to tell him? And God says, I'll tell you what to tell him. And we see in this passage, you're going to bless the Israelites and not curse them. So he went back to Balak and said, yeah, <laughs> I, you know, well, let's look at the passage again. Numbers chapter 23, verse 20. I received a command to bless. He's blessed. That is, God is blessed, and I can't change it. No misfortune is seen in Jacob. No misery observed in Israel. The Lord their God is with them. The shout of the king is among them. You know what that means? When the king shows up, everybody's happy. It's a, it's, a, it's a victory day. Woo, the king is here. Well, they didn't even have a king. And he says, their God showed up. And the, you hear shouts of joy from them. God brought them out of Egypt. They have the strength of a wild ox. <clears throat> There's no sorcery against them. No divination against Israel. It will now be said of Jacob and of Israel. See what God has done. <clears throat> he says, sorry, Balak. I, there's nothing I can do. God blessed them. And I can't overrule God. You know what Balak does, King Balak? He says, okay, let's try again. So they're going up on an, another mountain. Interestingly enough, another fun fact, this was Mount Pisgah. If you know where Mount Pisgah was, it was the mountain that, that uh, Moses stood on just before he went off into the wilderness and died because God told him because he hit the rock, he couldn't go into the promised land, but he would let him see it. So he went up on Mount Pisgah and from Mount Pisgah's top, he could see for miles and miles and miles into the holy land, into the promised land. And then he went off and died. That's Mount Pisgah. And so now uh, Balaam is up there on Mount Pisgah, offers 14 more sacrifices on seven more altars and inquires of God, God tells him the same thing. I've blessed them and they're blessed. You've got to bless them too. And so Balaam obeys God in this case instead of Balak and he blesses them. They did on a third mountain and the same thing happens. And Balaam, Balak is furious at Balaam and he says, stop, 
Stop blessing them. I hired you to curse them. It tells him just basically to shut up. He says, if you can't curse them, don't bless them either. Just say nothing. And Balaam says, you know, that's what God told me to do. He didn't want to bless them. Interestingly, he had to because God gave him that command. So I want us to notice two things from this passage. Number one, Balaam simply recognized their blessing. He says, it will be now said of Jacob and of Israel, see what God has done. Wow, something's going on here. They're clearly under the blessing of their God. It is irrefutable. Listen to me, when God blesses his people, when you are under the blessings of God, you are under the favor of God, you better acknowledge it. Don't leave it for the pagans to notice. <laughs> uh, you and I should acknowledge it. God forgive us for those times that he blesses us, and he has, and we just go on like nothing has happened. Or we have this entitlement mentality because we're, I don't know, Americans or whatever our excuse is that somehow God owes us. He doesn't owe us a thing. I tell you what God owes us is judgment. <laughs> I'm thankful for grace. He doesn't give us what we're owed. He gives us much better than what we deserve. And God has blessed you. He's blessed me so much. And we should at least acknowledge, recognize our blessing. Second thing he did is he could not overrule their blessing. And I love this part. If you're blessed by God, I've got good news for you. Nobody can undo that. No one can overrule that. Not your boss, not your teacher, not your ex-spouse, not your government, not your president. Nobody can overrule the blessings of God. Nobody. We don't have, to, and I know we spend a lot of time complaining about the government and that they're awful. And yeah, governments have always been awful. You know, <laughs> this guy and that guy, and I think as Americans, we should be active in our government and we should participate and there should be godly people in our government. But listen, don't, don't talk like, okay, yeah, we have our blessings here from God, but there's all this evil and darkness around us and they're just hounding us and they're taking our blessings. No, no, no. They ain't taking nothing. God has blessed us, and if it's the blessings of God, nobody can rip that out of our hands. And that's really what Balaam has said. He says, I'm overruled. I know you hired me to curse them, but it's God. <laughs> what? It's just a waste of time. So I can't do that. Everybody looks at him and says, see what God has done. In Numbers chapter 23, verse 5, he says it this way. How beautiful are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. Now, this is not a tent review <laughs> where he's, he sees their tents and goes, ooh, those are nice. I'd like to have one of those. That's not what he's saying. He's saying your tents, and by the way, they're tents because they're still nomadic. They haven't all settled down yet. And so most people would say, well, they're just nomads. They don't even have houses. How blessed are they? But even with them living in tents, uh, um, Balaam recognizes they are under the blessings of God. And he says, I envy their tents because he'd rather be living in a tent under God's blessings than in a beautiful palace apart from God's blessings. How beautiful are your tents, O Jacob? 
I don't know where you live. You may have the crummiest, single-wide, old, dilapidated trailer house of anybody in the congregation. You may be living in a motorhome or your van or you're living in some old cheap apartment. I don't know. But whoever you are out here, the worst place in here, the worst habitat being occupied right now by any member of the church or anybody watching, if you are under the blessing of God, I'd rather live in your house than in downtown Dallas at the nicest apartment that they have. Number two, so they were under God's favor, and that brings us to us. We are also under God's favor. If you're a believer in Christ, you are under the favor of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, our passage for today, the Apostle Paul says this, As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, In the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. And you, you realize that promise he's speaking about in the past. The day came, uh, I heard you, and my favor was upon you. I helped you. And then Paul says this, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Now, this sounds extraordinarily similar to a sermon that Jesus preached, do you remember, in the synagogue in Nazareth as he's saying this, today is the day of God's favor the day of salvation. So what are the results of God's favor? Well, it means whatever this evil world has in store for us, it won't matter. It shouldn't matter. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, as he's writing Rome, he says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God, God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to all this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he was speaking in the context of a Godless Roman government. He didn't care. He understood who was in charge. And it wasn't the Caesar. It was his God. Third, the favor of God was conditional. Conditional. I told you, because you're under the favor of God, and the Israelites were under the favor of God, that no one could overrule that favor except it could be undone. And there was only one person that could undo the favor of God in your life. There's only one person that can reverse the blessings in your life, and it is you or me. So what happened in the Old Testament with Balaam and Balak? Balaam went to Balak with a scheme, and he said, look, I can't overrule God. I don't have that power. I don't have authority to do that. But you can, you can have a loophole here. You can find a way to unravel the favor and the blessings of their God by getting them to do it themselves. So he came up with a scheme with Balak, King Balak, and he said, if you can take your women, the Moabite women, some really pretty women, 
and you infiltrate the Israelite nation with Moabite women, and which he did, and the, the Israelite men, you know what they did? Oh yeah, come on in. They were the celebrity of the day. I got a nice tent here, come into my tent. So in their, their tents they went by the Kajillions. And of course, once they started sleeping with these Moabite women, the Moabite women said, hey, why don't you join me in a little worship service for my God? They said, okay, as dumb as could be. And the favor of God departed. So bad, I told you, Jesus himself, what, 1,500 years later, writes through the hand of John a letter to the seven churches in Asia Minor. One of those letters was to a church called Pergamum, the church in Pergamum, a city called Pergamum, which was a huge, super rich city and super pagan city. The cult of emperor worship first started in Pergamum. They were the, they were the beginning for all that emperor worship that would happen over the years and centuries. And so there is a problem in the church. They were doing some great things, but there was this group in the church called the Nicolaitans. They had infiltrated the church. And these guys were thinking, well, you know, Christianity is great. I love that. The, the, the resurrection of Jesus, you know, eternal life, forgiveness, that's great. But over here, you got this emperor worship and they got, the, they got some good looking priestesses. And they're always happy to see us. <laughs> you know, let's do that too. We can have both. We can have our cake and eat it too. Let's, let's just be all inclusive. That's literally their thinking. So when Jesus, through the hand of John, wrote this letter, this is what he says to them in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. He says, nevertheless, this is to the church in Pergamum. This is Jesus speaking. I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. You've got people in your church that are doing that, Jesus said. And this halfway stuff won't work. So what does Satan do in our country? He slips, oh, he's slippery. He slips it into your life, your televisions, your internet, your phones, your workplace, your school. He's slipping it in. And this is a, almost a desperation on the part of, our, of, the, of, the, of the far left in our country. Just infiltrate, infiltrate, infiltrate. Let's get it into our schools. Let's get it to them as young as possible. Infiltrate, infiltrate. Let's get it into our libraries. Infiltrate. And slowly we just become numb. Every movie we watch, every TV show that comes on, they have an agenda and you can see that agenda. Infiltrate. I wonder what the letter that Jesus would write to the church in Azel would sound like. But I have good news for you. If you belong to God, no one can curse you. The bad news is you can unravel the blessings of God. And I can unravel the blessings of God in my own life through our own sin. Are you under a curse? What does a cure even look like? 
How do you get out from under a curse if you're being cursed? Well, first of all, you need to recognize a curse. It's not just bad luck. It's, it's, it's a curse. And by the way, all blessings ultimately come from God and all curses come from God. It's not some voodoo witch doctor. They can't curse. That evil neighbor you have can't put you under a curse. That ex-spouse, that boss, or whoever you don't like in your life, don't you worry. They may curse you. They may give you the special hand signal of a curse, but they can't do it. It doesn't work. Only God can put you under a curse. Did you know that? Nothing happens in this world apart from the hand of God. But if God curses you, you're going to know it. Let me give you an example. This is Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 38. And this is a description of a curse of God. Now, this is several thousand years ago, and so you can update it for the 21st century, but here is an example of a curse of God. You will sow much seed in the field. This is God speaking, by the way, but you will, not, you will harvest little because locusts will devour it. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes because worms will eat them. You will have olive trees throughout your country, but you will not use the oil because the olives will drop off. You will have sons and daughters, but you will not keep them because they will go into captivity. Swarms of locusts will take over all your trees and the crops of your land. The alien who lives among you will rise above you higher and higher, but you will sink lower and lower. He will lend to you, but you will not lend to him. He will be the head, but you will be the tail. All these curses will come upon you. They will pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the Lord your God and observe the commands and decrees he gave you. It's not that nation. It's not that foreigner that's in your land. It's not this or that. It is you and me that decide whether or not God will bless us or curse us. And God says, make no mistake. Everything you try to do is going to fail. Your crops will fail. Your kids will end up in somebody else's household. Everything you do will go bad because God's curse is upon you. Are you under God's curse? Well, I've got good news. You can fix it. Because God wants to bless you. He doesn't want to curse you. He doesn't want to curse me. God wants to bless us. He wants us under his favor. And he gives us the ability to fix it. How can we get back into the good graces of God? Well, to know that, you just have to look at the letter in Pergamum. Jesus said to them, look, I hold this against you. You guys are in trouble because you've given in to this teaching of Balaam. But I harbor good news, Jesus says, here's how you can fix it. Go with me to Revelation chapter 2, verse 16. And Jesus says simply, Repent, therefore. <laughs> that was his, it ain't too complicated. You don't have to take ancient Hebrew or ancient Greek. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to study your Bible for hours and hours or pray for years and years. There it is in black and white. Jesus says, you don't have a theological problem. You have a sinning problem <laughs> to the church in Pergamum and probably to the church in the United States. Who knows? But to you and to me in our life, if we want to be under the blessing of God, we have to repent. 
I know that sounds like a real preachy thing to say, but that's the words of Jesus. And I love the simplicity of it. By the way, if you're not a believer today, there is only one way you can put yourself under the blessing of God, and that is to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There's no way around that. There's no loophole no loop around that. You have to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If you are a believer in Christ and you really want 2024 to be a time of God's blessing and favor in your life, we need to repent right now. First Sunday of the year. Don't wait till April or May. You just wasted months. Right here, right now. Pray with me. Father, we come to you right now. Oh, how we want to blame everybody else for the difficulties in our life, for the flaws in our hearts. I want to blame the North Koreans, the Russians, the Chinese. They're all awful. But you know, I don't have a Chinese problem or a Russian problem or a Korean problem. We have a heart problem. And so, Father, we come to you today and we acknowledge, we acknowledge your desire to bless us. We acknowledge your endless love for us, your patience with us, your patience with me. Thank you. But we come to you today and we acknowledge that there are things in our life that dishonor you. Forgive us. Forgive us when we spend our life complaining in the midst of your blessings. Forgive us for blaming anybody and everybody else for the sin that's in our life instead of just coming to you and say, God, I did it. I own it. I repent. Forgive us for allowing ourselves to be distracted by Satan and thinking all of our problems in life are subject to a political party, a government, or that awful neighbor, or that terrible boss, or whatever excuse that we can come up with, when in reality, our problem is much closer to home. So Father, as 2024 begins, first Sunday today, maybe we begin by saying, we take responsibility. If we are not sensing your blessings in our life, we have nobody to blame but ourselves. It's not our parents' fault. It's not our kids' fault. It's not our spouse's fault. It's our fault. It's not our government's fault or the world's fault. Nobody owes us anything. It is our fault. We come before you acknowledging that we have said things that your people should not say. We have attitudes around others that is anything but the love of Christ. We tolerate them and call it love, but it is not love. In our homes, we say things to our families that are not loving. We say 
we are under the Lordship of Jesus, but we don't live like it. We waste your time because our life and our time belong to you. When we surrender to Christ, it belongs to you, not us. And we waste our time, but our time is your time. We waste your time on stupid stuff that makes no difference in this world, does not further your kingdom, does not honor or glorify you. Father, forgive us. We think of only ourselves too much of the time. It's all about what we did or what we didn't do or what we got or what we didn't get or this injustice to us and we just whine, whine all the time talking about ourselves, forgive us. We pray in 2024 we would open our hearts to others, that our words would be gracious, our thoughts would be pure and you would be king in our life. Forgive us for those times that you have blessed us so richly. Ah, oh, so much blessing you bestow on us and we don't even say thank you. We act like you owe us. Now, Father, you do not. It's by your mercy you listen to a word we say right now. Forgive us. May we surrender to you right now. As we're praying, no one's looking around. If you want to begin 2024 right, it needs to be between you and your God. It needs to start there, today, here, now. Maybe God is calling you to come down, get on your knees. He honors that right where you are. Only you know between you and God. He knows your heart. He knows everything you know about you. He knows what you're dealing with. He knows your struggles, your weakness. He knows. And he loves you anyway. Will you come to him now? No one's looking around. Would you stand? All heads are bowed. All eyes are closed.